I'm Bijan Karimi. Welcome to The Reflecting Pool, where I discuss thesis research being done by CHDS students, how the topic relates to the broader Homeland Security enterprise, and what it's like to be part of the master's program. Samantha Corda began her Homeland Security career at the state of Wisconsin's Intelligence Center. After 12 years and rising to become the center's deputy director, she took a position with a large consulting firm. Sam came to CHDS because she likes to constantly learn and wanted to solve interesting, provocative challenges with the greatest minds in Homeland Security. The concept of information laundering is not unlike money laundering. You take money from illegal activities, put it through a process that obscures where it came from, and then it comes out clean and it can be used for legitimate purposes. When bogus information goes through this process, it appears as legitimate, verified, and newsworthy. The Clinton Pizzagate, Obama's birth certificate, and Sandy Hook crisis actors are a few examples of the fringe stories that went through this process and became vetted mainstream news. Before the interview got underway, Sam did say she was slightly worried about publishing her thesis because of internet trolls. People that use the techniques she's describing don't like it when light is shed on their activities. I applaud her for pressing on and making sure this issue received the study it deserved. Sam's thesis begins with a three and a half page glossary of concepts like the backfire effect, computational propaganda, and hybrid warfare. Our interview starts with an explanation of why she began that way. Not only did I start it with three and a half pages of glossary, I also started it with 17 examples before I even really laid out any case for why I was providing those examples. I wanted to front load somebody who was just perusing the thesis with something that they would look at and go, hey, that's actually relevant to my mission. I also had a lot of moving parts that I felt if you didn't have that information up front, you were going to lose track of all the things that we were about to talk about. One so. of the phrases that you use in your thesis, but isn't in the glossary, is cognitive security. The reason I went with cognitive security is because I don't believe this issue fits neatly either into physical or cybersecurity. So one of the things that came up, that comes up a lot when you're talking about fake news is election security. And you don't need to actually, if you're doing an effective information laundering campaign, you don't actually have to hack an election, you just have to make people think you hacked an election. So it's not necessarily a physical threat, it's not really a cyber threat, it's a cognitive threat. You're hacking the minds of the voters and it's doing the same kind of impact as if you had actually changed the votes. And in many cases, the idea of a threat is to worry people. It's Mm -hmm. not necessarily the actual action. Exactly. We need to have a conversation in America, especially for two reasons. One, we believe in democracy and free speech, which is a good thing, but it is a contributing factor to why information and the spreading of this kind of information is so prolific, because we do believe that people should have free and open dialogue, which includes you're free to lie and tell all kinds of of things that are misleading. That's part of your right. You're allowed to spread conspiracy theories. And then the second part is we as a capitalistic society have created a an environment where we are primed for online advertising. It's actually the Facebooks of the world and the Googles of the world that make more money on us per ad than any other country in the world, apart from Canada, I think we're equal there. So we're primed for being persuaded by online material. And so those two factors play a really big part in why I think it's definitely a problem worldwide, but really it's a crucial problem in America. 
propaganda and fake news have been around forever. How does this kind of link with information laundering? The information laundering model is built on a money laundering metaphor. Counterfeit narrative is the currency that you launder through the internet ecosystem that comes out as clean in the end. So just like with money laundering, you have dirty money that you launder through the financial system. And by the time you're done, you lose track of how that money even got in there and where it went and you come out and it's clean. It's the same concept for information laundering. So you have this piece of information, it's either false or very misleading or extremist. It goes into the internet ecosystem. It bounces around a variety of sources and enablers. And by the time it comes out, you've lost track of where it came from. And you're talking about it in mainstream culture as if it's something that's normal to talk about. Just like with money laundering, it's all about legitimizing the money, legitimizing the information that's being discussed. Walk me through an example of how a piece of information is laundered. Information laundering, just like money laundering, is broken into three phases. So the first phase is the counterfeit narrative where you're gonna prepare that so that it's gonna be the most viral. You're gonna ideally create content that looks legitimate and then you're gonna put it into the internet ecosystem and start passing it across various areas. It could be a, a news article that looks real but it isn't and then you post about it on Facebook and then from Facebook you start commenting on it and then it goes over to blogs of the world, the reddits of the world and it starts sharing and then all of a sudden everyone's talking about it and then you can add uh, the bots on top of it. Let's take the anti-vaccination movement. That's the first scene in my thesis. This was a falsified report published in 1998 in a medical journal that was quickly debunked but Despite it happening in the 90s, you're still seeing conversations about it in social media, on in Reddit, in blogs, in news articles talking about this. And even if it's a news article speaking to how this isn't a real journal article and this has been debunked, people will then share it and then they'll discuss how it's not and then that will still could potentially generate anti-vaccination conversation. And then that results in outbreaks and actual harm to people in the real world. And you've mentioned the internet a couple of times. It's Mm -hmm. this, this amazing thing that connects people everywhere and it's the catalyst for the information revolution. How has Web 2.0 contributed to this dissemination of false information after it's been laundered? It's very interesting because Web 2.0 is a revolution. The fact that you went from a place where we had broadcasters, we had people who were gatekeepers of information that controlled the narrative that was being portrayed to an audience, that was what was going on for a long time because they controlled you know, the mainstream media because there was no cheap and effective way to reach a mass audience until the internet. And then Web 2.0 came and it allowed for people to not only consume information, but produce information and share it with a mass audience. What I talk about that's happening here, though, is within Web 2.0, after we got to this point where we had this free and open dialogue, people started recognizing that you could usurp this space and make things become amplified by leveraging the tools around you. So I always give the example first of, so we had the Arab Spring and that they leveraged social media in order to start a movement. It was a true grassroots movement. They mobilized online and all those great things happened. People saw that and they took advantage of that and they said, hey, let's do that, but let's do it 
just by creating technology that makes it seem like a lot of people are talking about something and they call that actually astroturfing. So it's not really a lot of people talking about this topic and everyone needs to start thinking about it. It's a couple voices being amplified online by certain technologies. You also talk about bots. How is that linking in there? Bots are not a bad thing. Bots are actually more than 50% of the internet. They are a piece of computer code that do a specific task. Where you worry is when you create bots that are specifically designed to share disinformation on the internet very rapidly. So when I talk about it in my thesis, I talk about it from the concept of computational propaganda, which is algorithms and automation and human curated content meant to go viral and spread disinformation. That within the thesis, within the model of information laundering is something that accelerates the speed and travel of that information. The news is filled with stories about Russia and China creating fake social media accounts, using the bots you just talked about, and putting out all manner of false information. What is the impact to Homeland Security? You have physical threats to public safety. You've got incidents such as Pizzagate or the Sandy Hook shooting where you in Pizzagate you actually had an armed gunman show up to a a Comet Ping Pong pizza parlor exclaiming that there was a child sex trafficking dungeon in the basement of this facility when the facility didn't even have a basement. He did discharge his firearm. In the Sandy Hook incident, you had the shooting at the elementary school and a lot of disinformation and conspiracy theories were being laundered online, resulting in a large sect of the population believing that that incident didn't actually occur. And then you also have, especially during and in the middle of critical incidents, in the middle of natural disasters, you see a lot of information laundering, a lot of information being spread that's false or misleading, and it can take up even to the point where it's the first thing when you Google an incident, fake news might be the first thing that pops up. And so there's all kinds of confusion. And then you also have, from a public health standpoint in Homeland Security, if you have movements where people don't believe that vaccinations are a good thing, then it leads to outbreaks and it leads to preventable things that could have not occurred had they actually believed the medical information that supported being vaccinated. And then you have nation-state actors amplifying public discord and the polarization that we're already experiencing as a nation, trying to sow chaos just because ideologically they don't want democracy to work. There's that cognitive piece as well. So you you can influence people's behavior without actually having to do anything. That's the cream of the crop. You can get people to do things and you don't actually have to go to war. We don't control the creation of false information, but... Facebook, Google, YouTube, all kinds of stuff is coming out where the onus is on them in order to manage some of this fake information that's coming out. As a primary source of media, how does the government and the private sector partner to stop or mitigate some of this? And do you think that they are responsible, the Googles, the Facebooks, for national security? I don't think that there's going to be a single solution, a single partnership, a single platform that's going to be able to solve this problem. I think we all have to play a part. I think it's a multi-factor, multi-jurisdictional, multi-industry solution. I think the tech companies play a role here. I think that they are doing their best to manage and mitigate content that shouldn't be on there in terms of, you know, extremist material, sexual material, and things like that. But I actually think where they play the biggest part is 
looking at the model through which they operate. What they've done is created a space and a platform where they are collecting a lot of information about us. And because of that, they're able to do micro-targeting at a level where we've never seen before. So I give an analogy in my thesis of anyone can walk to a grocery store and they go to the aisle with all the candy and it's always the same for every person but imagine that you walked up there and it changed specific to you the thing they knew you were going to buy and that would very much probably change whether or not you were going to purchase something when you got to the aisle so now they've built this micro-targeting capability where someone who wants to make something happen can get to the people who are the most likely to be persuaded by their narrative and that is is terrifying. One of the references you cite is Remarks on Public Diplomacy in a Post-Truth Society by Bruce Wharton. Yes. What does a post-truth society look like? The definition for post-truth is relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. What's interesting is Bruce Wharton, in his remarks, actually says we're not in a post-truth society. And I, I tend to agree with him because though we do still go on social media and are drawn to the emotionally driven things, when you poll people or when you talk to people, they still want facts. They still want our government to talk to experts. And what he says, he says instead, we are facing increased competition from pseudo facts, but the truth is still valued, desired, and ultimately compelling. We just need to find the right ways to communicate it. I want to agree with that. I don't know how we operate I don't have strategies for how we operate in a post-truth world. I think we're still at the point where we haven't crossed over completely and we can do certain things to potentially prevent us from going completely away from facts and completely away from truth. How do we make strategic decisions in this environment where some of the information that's coming our way, we may or may not know how valid it is, someone may be feeding it to us? When I talk about solutions in the thesis, I actually discuss this again being multi-factor. One of them is to educate ourselves, look at our education system, look at things like identifying credible sources, helping people recognize potential information that might not be as trustworthy as it can be. The issue when you look at information laundering, this is the whole idea, is that you create borrowed associations and trusted sources link to non, not as trusted sources, and that increases the potential for those non-trusted sources to get some credibility and be legitimized. I can't trust what I read. With Photoshop, I can't trust photos anymore. Deep fakes make it so now I can't trust video. I think about people with kids that may not have that bullshit detector. Mm -hmm. I think about some older adults who may be more trustworthy uh, as, as they go on the internet because they're not mm -hmm. familiar with that online environment. Yes. How does their awareness increase so they say, yeah, this doesn't sound right? There are a lot of solutions being proposed. Part of this goes back to when I was talking about the, on the online advertising model. We have articles that are there to sell something that may have an ad flag, but isn't as apparent. It looks like an article and people are misled by that. So those kinds of things were primed from this corporate propaganda perspective to to not recognize those sources. So helping make that clearer, tagging information, even potentially looking at things like satire accounts. Not saying that those are bad, they're very funny, but some people aren't able to actually recognize satire versus real posts. 
Oh, one of the books I read for the thesis, he mentioned, he said, the, the problem, of course, is not that technology is bad, but that so few understand it. And you need to familiarize yourself with what technology can do, not just so that you're using it the most effective way, but you understand how people can use it against you. Despite where we are now, I don't believe that the tech companies of the world thought that by creating these platforms, they were going to potentially create measles outbreaks or have folks receive death threats because they are there are people who don't believe their children actually existed or died at a at a school shooting. I don't think they really intended for that to happen, but it did. I think something that's missing is the tech companies to say, yeah, we need to own this more. We need to be more actively involved in helping you. As Facebook will sometimes say, I'm not just a platform for content. I am enabling this to happen, and I need to own more of that. So there are conversations about whether Facebook should be looked at as a media platform with the same rules that the the broadcasters of the world, the mass media, needs to abide by. Um, in turn, I don't have enough of an understanding to speak to whether or not they should be considered part of the national security space, nor do I know. I think just like in the law enforcement space, they provide information to help law enforcement do their job. I think they do have a role in the visibility of the access to information and what they're doing. I think that's where they are a player. I don't think they're the owners of the national security issue, but I do think that thinking through their responsibility in this space and how they address some of the the threats and the information being disseminated on their platforms is something that there is active debate. What is your fondest memory of your time at NPS? I don't have one because there was another instructor, Lauren Fernandez, who introduced me to a concept called type two fun. Type one fun is you're in the moment, it's amazing, you're loving it. Type two fun is while you're going through it, it's maybe one of the hardest experiences you've ever had. It's stressful. You don't know if you're going to make it. But then when you look back, you look back fondly and you appreciate everything you've achieved. And that is fun. So I would say my whole experience was type two fun. So when I look back, I look at it very fondly. And I look back at watching this crazy group. We're 1611, a very eclectic very opinionated people getting through this type two fun exercise together. And I think that and the relationships I built and this family of 1611 that I'll take with me throughout my career. If you were going to give advice to a prospective applicant, what would it be? I would say, take it seriously, do the work, sprinkle in some type one fun and go where there be dragons. When I asked Sam what advice was the most helpful when writing her thesis, she said being encouraged to explore ideas that aren't traditional homeland security topics, getting the yin and yang perspectives from her advisors as she worked through her analysis, and the final piece of advice, when it comes to your thesis, you're never finished. You just need to stop. I hope you've enjoyed hearing about Samantha Cordes' thesis, Fake News, Conspiracy Theories and Lies, an Information Laundering Model for Homeland Security. Her research is one part of a larger exploration of fake news. Listen to my interview with Greg Favor, where we explore anti-intellectualism and how people hold fast to their personal beliefs, even when they know there's significant evidence to the contrary. In an upcoming podcast, you'll hear from Melissa Madrigal about the neuroscience behind bad news and why we overvalue negative stories. 
CHDS is the nation's homeland security educator and part of the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. Since 2002, CHDS has provided a neutral educational forum where current and future homeland security leaders discuss policies, strategies, and programs needed to counter terrorism and handle catastrophic events. For information on the master's, executive leadership, or other academic programs, visit chds.us.